Hi, I'm Hall of Fame sportscaster Leslie Visser. I was just honored as the first woman to win the Sports Emmy Lifetime Achievement, so I've known for decades about challenging the norm. This month, In Conversation with Leslie Visser, we'll take a deeper look into Title IX, the 37 words that changed society. Fifty years ago, on June 23, 1972, the passage of Title IX radically altered sports in this country, ensuring that women would no longer be discriminated against in any federally funded educational program. In the early 1970s, I was on a high school basketball team where only two of us, called Rovers, could cross half court. Yes, only two of the then six players could cross half court. It was thought that too much exertion would damage a young girl's heart. By the mid-70s, I both marched for and wrote about Title IX. Ironically, the word sports does not appear anywhere in the amendment, but the landmark legislation recognized that gender equity in education was a civil right, and it, of course, included sports. This month on In Conversation, we'll hear from some of the beneficiaries, now icons, of Title IX. People like Cheryl Miller, Julie Foudy, Dominique Dawes, Val Ackerman, and Jessica Mendoza. I'm old friends with all of them. I hope you'll join us. It's such a magical name, Dominique Dawes, and no surprise, her life has been kind of magical. A member of the Magnificent Seven, the Olympic gymnastic icons who won gold in Atlanta, she's been on Broadway in Greece, and of course, was her high school homecoming queen. Dominique also experienced the dark side of gymnastics, what she called a toxic culture. So now she runs a healthy gym for young people who maybe aren't going to be world-class athletes, just happy kids. Thanks for joining me, gorgeous one. Thank you for having me, Leslie. I appreciate it. No, it's great to catch up with you. But I first have to know about Greece. I never asked you about it. How did that come about? And what is Broadway like? Um, well, I will say I had absolutely no talent in the in theatrics, singing, acting, and dancing. But when I won the gold medal in 1996 after the Atlanta Olympic Games, I had an agent at the time, and he got this inquiry from those that were running uh, Greece and asked if I would be interested in starring on Broadway. And I thought, there's no way, because I don't have the confidence, nor do I have the skill, but I went out to Hollywood and I auditioned and I really think the audition was rigged because I was horrible. And I did this audition and they're like, you got the role. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. And then soon I was off to New York City, December of 1996, this very sheltered individual. I was 20 years old, but I felt like I was still 14. And I was living in the big city and performing, acting, singing, dancing on Broadway. And um, while it was a wonderful, memorable experience, um, I quickly realized, again, that wasn't my gift. But it's funny because when I was in New York City the other day with my oldest daughter, I went over to Eugene O'Neill Theater on 49th and Broadway. And I walked her and showed her what you know I experienced in 96 and 97 in the Broadway musical Grease. And so it was really cool to kind of go back to that experience. Did they um, include or kind of uh, add some gymnastic moves for you, at least so you could be? Yeah, so that it would work out. I was Patty Simcox. So I was the cheerleader. I was the bubbly, vivacious cheerleader that was 
always searching after or going after Danny Zuko. And so my character would do a lot of flips and she was very outgoing, <laughs> not my personality of being outgoing. Um, but I had a lot of fun. The only problem is I would always develop a crush on the actual Danny Zuko, whoever the guy was playing um, Danny <laughs> Zuko that month, because it would change every now and then. And eventually the cast members pulled me aside and like, Dominic, it's acting. And I was like, oh, I felt like, <laughs> you know, I felt like he really to me. So it he was- sold uh, it. Yeah, I totally did. Um, is it a cool thing to see your name in a playbill in a Broadway play? You know, it's interesting. I remember having my name in lights outside the theater, the Eugene O'Neill Theater. And it said Dominique Dawes. And um, like you said, in the play in the playbill. But what I always you know, have talked about lately is. The world will tell you you've made it, you know, if you are you know, your name is in lights and you're the star in New York City. And, you know, I was making decent money and I was truly my most miserable in life. And I remember being very, very almost at some point, point depressed because I was like, I'm really not loving it. It's not that it was, it was Hollywood or I'm sorry, or it was Broadway, but it really wasn't where I felt as if um, I was meant to be and meant to be my best self. And so I went through a very challenging time because I was accomplishing everything that the world said would lead to happiness and fulfillment and success. Um, but after doing that for a little bit over maybe six months, five to six months, um, I quickly realized this wasn't my calling. And so I went back home, went to the University of Maryland and um, <laughs> continued to do my motivational speaking. And that's where I felt called um, to be my best self. And that was to inspire and give back to others through story. Well, that was kind of a tough time for you, as I recall anyway. Uh, I'm a native Bostonian, so I remember the 96 trials. And wasn't that a very complicated time for you? And yeah, what, what bubbled to the surface there? Yeah, so those were the 1996 Olympic trials. I love that you brought that up. And um, I competed in the trials and I ended up winning the all-around competition. And I remember... That was my second Olympic Games. I was in pain like every other athlete out there. And at that time, Shannon Miller, my Olympic teammate, and Dominique Mochianu were sitting in the stands and they were technically injured. And so they were told that they didn't have to compete and that they would be petitioned to be on the team. And I remember at one point having a conversation with my coach at the time and saying, hey, I'm in pain as well. And she pretty much pulled me aside and said, Dom, there's no guarantee that you would be petitioned and put on that team. And I remember even then as a 19 year old thinking, what didn't I already earn my way? You know, if you're going to say that these two athletes earn their way, then why wouldn't I be kind of lumped or clumped into that same scenario? And um, I just didn't want a repeat of what happened to, or what I've been told has happened to Diane Durham. She was an African-American gymnast and she was pretty much one of the top gymnasts during the 1984 nationals. And I believe she got injured, didn't compete in Olympic trials, was under the impression she would be petitioned to be on the team and was not selected. And so um, I was reminded of that and I didn't want that to be, you know, my fate. And so I competed and I won the all around, but it really wasn't satisfying because you do feel how the sport of gymnastics can really be unfair at times. Yeah, I think back then you characterized it almost as an emotional breakdown that you felt that there truly was abuse in the sport of gymnastics. Well, that actually came a little later. I knew there was abuse when I was young, but I was it was almost deaf to it. But the 2000 Olympic trials were actually in 
Boston as well. I don't know why Fleet Center always hosted, you know, many of the Olympics. We love you guys. <laughs> yeah, they loved us. And so it was when I was 23 years old, coming back for a third Olympics. And after my initial day of competing, I knew that I really wasn't wanted on that team. It's it's not something that was said to me, but you just feel it and you know it. And it's very clear of who they were going to select. And I made a decision that I didn't want to do it. And I backed down. And I don't feel as if it was me being a loser or quitting or anything along those lines. You just don't want to be in a circle of, with individuals um, that are unfair. You know, and so I didn't want to compete. I was forced to compete. And even at the time, um, family friends drove from Maryland in the middle of the night on their uh, all the way to Boston to be there to be my support system because they knew how um, devastating it was for me emotionally. And so, yes, I did have that breakdown um, and you just knew it was unfair, but you didn't know who to tell or who to communicate it to. And I finished out and I ended up being selected. Uh, mainly because I believe the individual they wanted on that team got injured during those Olympic trials. Did you meet, uh, run into Larry Nasser at those games? Um, He was my Olympic team doctor for nearly 10 years of my childhood. And so I knew him back in the early 90s. I was always injured with tendonitis and he had come up with some device to wear for my ankle. And he was at the 96 Olympics with us as well as the 2000 Olympics as well. And so we really did see him as a friend. We, you know, didn't suspect anything. Um, However, when everything came out, Leslie, in 2016, with regards to the allegations, a reporter had asked me how or why did this happen? How did it go on for so long? And I said, it's the culture of of gymnastics, there's rampant physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse. Us young athletes are very vulnerable. We're in a lot of pain. We're distressed. We have no one to speak up and speak out to because if we do, we know it's going to jeopardize our chances of being on an Olympic team or being selected for a world championship team. So we were taught to very much remain silent and very controlled. And we had so much fear and anxiety and that's how it happened. And so he took advantage of these young athletes that were vulnerable. And I vividly remember in Sydney, Australia, when we were training in preparation for those Olympic games in 2000, he even let us know if we needed someone to talk to, if we needed someone to lean on, to go to him. And I will assure you, a number of those young girls not only were physically injured, but also in emotional distress. And they went to him and he took advantage of them and abused them further. Okay, we have to go through this a little bit more. It's um, somebody that you were around for a decade and no other athlete would share. Um, Dominique, I have to talk to you. I I think something's really weird. No, Mm -mm. not at all. Not at all. Because you were competition and still in some sense or uh, that teammates also compete against each other. I mean, what would be the reason you wouldn't say, has this happened to you? You know, I've heard that with the younger generation, those that really blew the whistle, that they started sharing it with one another. But the practice of some type of manipulation that he would do on these athletes were those that had a back injury or a hamstring injury or let's say a hip injury. And he had convinced enough people, I believe, from coaches to parents to, you know, USAG officials that this is a legitimate Uh, treatment, but yet you would think that it would be required that an adult would be in the room supervising uh, this, this minor during this treatment. And I, it, 
from what I've heard, that has not always been the case and that there would be times where he was alone with athletes or with other minors. And they just kind of experienced it together. But like I mentioned earlier, when there's such a toxic culture and young people are already feeling so controlled and silenced and fearful, they're already uncomfortable. And then he took advantage further that they weren't speaking out about being yelled at or demeaned or weight shamed or kept after practice hours on end as their hands and wrists wrists are bleeding and people are witnessing this and they're crying, hyperventilating in practice and no one's doing anything about it. They're almost thinking, well, if I communicate about this, will anyone hear me or will it fall on deaf ears? And I will say for my generation, I'm sure many of the athletes didn't speak up because they thought it's just going to fall on deaf ears, one. And then number two, it would jeopardize their chances of making an Olympic team, which is what each and every one of us sacrificed our childhood for. I started the sport of gymnastics when I was six. I retired nearly at the age of 24 years old. And you just knew that you couldn't speak out and you couldn't say if you were being treated poorly or if you were in some some type of pain, because if you did, they will take away that Olympic dream of yours. Oh my gosh. Is is there a parental element. I mean, we see this in tennis, we see it in figure skating, where the parents don't want to know anything because the child is the meal ticket. Um, I wouldn't be able to speak for anyone else, but I did live with my coach for much of my childhood. And I think for my parents, they saw this as, oh, she loves the sport of gymnastics. She's really good at it. And, you know, it maybe made the, the home life a little easier for my parents that I wasn't there as much because I had an older sister, a younger brother with special needs, and my dad was running his own trash company. And so they, my parents weren't present. Many people didn't even know what they looked like. And so I was pretty much under the guise of my coach and her focus was on, in my opinion, now as a mother, knowing what happened to me and what I went through and what I will make sure my children never go through is that individual dug her claws in and she saw that it was a perfect storm that my parents were somewhat removed from the situation and she pretty much controlled me 24 seven. Are you talking about Kelly Hill? Yes, I am. When, when you say emotional abuse, I mean, what is, what are examples of that? Because, you know, a lot of people can feel emotionally abused and, and I don't think you're speaking of when a boy hangs up on you. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, my goodness, I didn't go through that till later on in life. <laughs> I, would say, I would say it's a culture of, and I can't repeat this enough, of silence where you can't speak out. You can't let people know how you're feeling. Um, a, a culture of fear where you're constantly on eggshells that anything and everything you do is never enough. And a it's just a complete controlled environment. Like if I wanted to leave, I really didn't feel as if I had the freedom to leave. I was kept after practice numerous times to stay and get an assignment done. And I might've been kicked out and sent to the locker room, but because I lived with the individual, I sat there and cried and cried and my teammates would finish their training. And then she would scream my name to come back out and finish the assignment as I watched my teammates leave and go home to their parents. And then the next day, it would happen all over again. I experienced a great deal of anxiety as a young child and a great deal of fear. And as many Olympians or maybe even athletes feel is you feel like your identity is wrapped up in being this athlete or this Olympian 
that it's hard for you to step away. But as a young person, I never felt as if I ever had a choice to step away. You said you started at six years old. Uh, Was there a point where uh, it started to feel like a job? At first, I mean, of course, it's fun. Like I'm short, I'm, you know, muscular. I love to flip. I'm looking at the big girls and I want to emulate what they're doing. But I will say it probably was around nine or 10 years old when I started waking up at 445 in the morning. And I had lived with my parents at that time. And so we'd wake up at 445 and I'd be to practice in Wheaton, Maryland for 6 a.m. training till 8 a.m. And then my coach would take me to public school and I would be back at practice 4 to 9 p.m. at night. And while I love the sport of gymnastics, it really did start feeling like a job because it was almost 24-7. And you're under a microscope. Everything you do is being looked at, is being overanalyzed, is being judged. And you always felt as if you were never good enough. And you were trained to strive for perfection and you were trained to be a people pleaser. It was whatever the judges or your coaches asked of you, you needed to get done. And as a young person, I remember constantly hearing that, oh, my feet weren't what they wanted. I had flat feet. So I didn't have that beautiful, you know, balletic arch toe point or my legs wouldn't go together. I had bow legs. So I was constantly told that you would get a deduction for your your bow legs and your legs being apart or your knees not fully straightening. And so I remember many times putting my legs on mats and my coach, who was not a light individual, would sit on my legs to try to hyperextend my legs so that my legs would look like the 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 Russian gymnast or Russian ballerina that I would never become. That's nuts. The level of pain that you go through at such a young age is very alarming. And the thing is, there's enough people that sit and they observe this and they just think this is how you build a champion. Um, Leslie, I went back and wrote some articles many, many years ago, and this was actually left to me from my coach's now passed away mother. And in the article, it was from the 1980s. And it shares a story of how my former coach and another local coach in Maryland went over to, I believe, the Soviet Union. And they were wanting to learn from the best because the Soviets were always dominant in the sport of gymnastics. And what they witnessed was a level of fear and control and intimidation on these young girls' lives at a very, very young age. And at the end of this article, there was some quote with regards to my coach saying, oh, I hope when when if Dominique is ever ready that her parents allow me to, you know, pretty much take over and take her. And that's truly now as a a wife, a 45-year-old mother of four, that's exactly, exactly what happened to me. Well, uh, tell me about uh, a good friend of mine is Bonnie Bernstein. I'm sure. Oh, Marilyn, another Marilyn. She's great. And, uh, but she made, sometimes she made her career at CBS tough on herself. And I used to say to her, I think, I think, Bonnie, this is because you were a gymnast um, and an All-American at, at Maryland. And so she used to say to me, you know what? I get out of bed and then the rest of the day is I get points deducted. Yep. Like, I mean, is that, is that accurate? That's almost a lifestyle? It's a lifestyle until, until you take the, the time to reframe the way you view the world and you view yourself. And I've done that. And my husband, who um, you might have briefly met at Fight for Children, he is wired completely differently. He sees everything that's perfect. He sees that rose in the with the burning you know bush over there. He'll see this beautiful rose. And so 
Bonnie is exactly correct. And you seeing that in Bonnie is we look for We were trained and taught to look for imperfections in ourselves, And we were taught to believe that we're never good enough. And that's even why my gymnastics academy here in Clarksburg, and I'm opening one in Rockville, and I want to open more in the state of Maryland is because I want to help young people realize you are more than enough. You are more than enough. And you are not a deduction, which is how I was made to feel my whole childhood. And that's the way that I am trained to view life. And then when I realized, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, obviously setting myself up for failure. It's self-sabotage. You're never going to be good enough. I have to remember to reframe the way that I'm viewing this world. And so, yes, that's something that's ingrained in us um, at a very young age from the minute we walk into the gymnastics gym. And then sadly, many of us carry that baggage with us for the rest of our lives. Wow. I remember doing a story before the 84 Olympics with Bella Caroli, and he terrified me. It was probably I wasn't writing on my notepad clearly enough. But when you first met him, were you thinking, this is the guy? I mean, this is who I want to be with. No, not at all. I remember in 19, I think it was the winter of 1991 or early 1992 winter, I was training at my coach's new facility that she had just signed a very long-term lease on. And as many times back then, I was training with her alone one-on-one at six o'clock in the morning. Imagine that, Leslie. 15-year-old, pretty much the mindset of 11-year-old because I lived such a sheltered childhood. I'm alone being just scrutinized and ridiculed and critiqued 24 seven in this cold gym on a winter. And I remember she didn't like something that I was doing. And I said to her, it's so hard training alone. Like I actually did say, and she's like, well, maybe I'll just send you to Bella's ranch. And I remember immediately freezing as a child, like being paralyzed, thinking, oh my goodness, she's going to send me away to Bella's ranch. Like everyone knew and compared what they were going through to what we the stories you heard were going on at Caroli's ranch. And so, you know, while I knew I was being treated badly, I was like, oh, but I don't want to go there because there's much more control or much more, you know, um, you know, weight shaming and things of that nature. And so the sad thing is I actually believe that this woman had that level of control over my life because I was made to believe that, that she would ship me off. And she used that not to motivate me to say, oh, you're going to train under Bella's and you're going to be with Kim Zameskel and Betty Okino and Hillary Gribich. And I mean, he had a team of people, a whole host of young athletes that had this amazing amount of talent to make the 1992 Olympic team. She used that as a threat to me as a young girl that I have this level of control over your life and I'm going to send you away. And I just remember being paralyzed and, and truly believing that she had that level, level of control. And that in itself, again, now being a mother of, you know, four young children, that's emotional abuse. That is abuse on a child that you're threatening, that you're going to send them away to an environment that many people know is full of a great deal of abuse and using that as some form of um, motivation. Yeah, uh, extortion, really. Very much so. And Leslie, when I opened my gym in the middle of the global pandemic, July 2020. Oh, great timing. I have great timing. <laughs> but it's but it is it has been a joy because I've found so many amazing people, coaches that actually want to work with kids, not because of um the kids' talent or what they're going to achieve, but because of who those kids are as people 
And that has warmed me more than anything that these coaches, it doesn't matter the age of the kids, the ability of the kids, the net worth of the kids' parents, but they just love positively impacting kids' lives. And that's something that as a young person, I truly felt as if the focus was not on me as Dominique, the person, but on what I could do for that individual's business and how that individual um, could grow their business from me. And there was a, a former parent that used to house one of my teammates, right? So some of my teammates would eventually relocate from out of state and then they would live with a host family. One of these host parents is now a grandmother and she has come to my new facility and she said, Dom, I love what you're doing because I watched day in and day out for years how your former coach would tear you down and rip you down only to build you up. And she said, for some, somehow you were able to pull out of it and get motivated. But the young girl that she used to host would actually be ripped down, torn apart, she said, but she couldn't come out of it. It didn't motivate her. But even if it did motivate me to face a fear or accomplish a skill, there are long-term ill effects to that. And that's not the way you build a child by ripping them down. And that is the complete opposite of what we do in my academy today. We lift kids up because they deserve that to be empowered and educated and to you know, help their self-esteem flourish. And that's not what I experienced as a child. Yeah, it's amazing that you speak of true scar tissue that wasn't just about uh, performing. It was internal scar tissue. Do, do you, or what were your thoughts when you saw Simone Biles withdraw? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because leading up to it, I just knew and I was putting myself in her shoes, the amount of pressure that that young girl had to have been facing, um, not only to live up to people's expectations of what she could accomplish um, on the floor, but she's also a sexual abuse survivor. She had spoken out about it and also been very vocal about speaking out against USA Gymnastics and their lack of doing anything and helping protect these young athletes. And so it was more than just about sports and that she was very much one of the catalysts in forcing change in the sport of gymnastics. And I just remember thinking the weight that she must feel taking all of that on, it's going to greatly impact her. And when I found out that she had um, withdrawn from the competition, citing mental health issues, I wasn't surprised whatsoever. I understand that it manifested itself in something called twisties, where she then would get lost in the air. I went through that. It didn't have a name back then. It was called a mental block, or my coach would always let me know that I was mental and I was an extremely emotional athlete. You, you, were, you were actually put down because you were dealing with something emotionally. You were, I mean, I remember going through these twisties Many times when my parents were going through their brutal divorce, um, I remember going through these twisties when I was dealing with stress at school and being bullied. I remember going through these twisties as I felt um, the weight of the world on my shoulders leading up to the 1994 national championships. But you got absolutely no bit of encouragement, no bit of support, no bit of compassion uh, brought to you. And I love the fact that Simone Biles let those coaches, the federation, know who's in control. And she said, I'm not going to jeopardize my mental health and I'm not going to jeopardize my physical health. When I was younger, Leslie, I did not have a choice. I was made to feel I didn't have a choice. And so 
Um, you know, I think what she's done is is great and it's going to allow more people to speak out and do what's best for them. We don't want to create this, you know, belief that people should quit when times get tough. But I will say what she was dealing with was very much the weight of the world um, on her shoulders. And I couldn't imagine, you know, managing that. Um, take me, boy, that's a it's a great answer for putting what we all saw in perspective. But but take me through that. Like, is it okay, you're lining up for the vault and are you thinking, I just don't feel right in myself. And then it looks to us like it happens so fast that, I mean, how do you even have time to process that this is something mentally is going on? I remember for, there were two world championships that I had the ability to win. And I remember just overthinking things. And my coach would always say analysis paralysis. And it's interesting because even to this day, I still hear that negativity from her reverberating in my mind. And yet it's interesting because when I speak to my children or if I were to go on the floor and coach, you want to say something to a young person that's going to lift them up and help them, you know, work through this. this. Yeah. Rather than kind of keeping them stuck in that. And so I was always told um, from her analysis paralysis, and you just start trying to overthink or overprocess or manipulate your body to do something that it already knows how to do automatically. And so you try to shut your brain off, but just imagine trying to do that when you're making the effort to shut your brain off. What are you doing? You're thinking about what's going on in your brain. But, so, but is it like in a tenth of a second, you're saying, where am I uh, in the middle of it? Yeah. Yeah. You're trying to get a feel for doing that particular move. And then you just overthink it and you're not doing what your body automatically knows how to do. I went through it so many times in my training and it could last for a week. It could last for almost a month. And for it to happen during an Olympic games would be quite terrifying. When is it that it could be just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not up for it inside world-class athlete that I am. And where is it? No, this is really serious. I think it's really serious when it's beyond just the sport. And I think that's what she was experiencing. And I think that's also what many gymnasts experience because we are in such a toxic environment. You know, um, you, you know, we were, I, part, I was the executive producer of Golden, the journey of USA's elite gymnasts on the road to Tokyo. And I would encourage you to watch it if you haven't watched it on Peacock, because it's a docu-series that really shows you the behind the scenes journey of a young gymnast striving to make it to an Olympic games. And it's not just the, I'm going to work hard physicality of it. It's also the emotional aspect, the anxiety, the fear, the control, um, you know, the walking on eggshells, the constant criticism that you're never enough or what kind of face or attitude are they going to, you know, have on them today? Or how are you impacting, um, you know, those around you? It's, it's just too, much. And I remember watching this and I wasn't there to travel and watch the training, but I knew what was going on. And I watched this with my husband and it was very emotional for me where I had to turn it off. And he was like, stop turning it off. But I had to turn it off multiple times because it would take me back to what I lived in my childhood. I remember at the 1992 Olympic Games, Leslie, in Baltimore, Maryland, making it in my mind, I made it. And I was fourth all around and I'm thinking, oh, I made the Olympics. Nope, you didn't. You know, you have to go back to this, this selection committee uh, training camp process and then we will decide who will make it. And I'm thinking to myself, like, 
I knew that they were talking about this, like this is how they're going to select the team. But then I'm thinking, why have an Olympic trials? <laughs> why have a ranking? Why have a photo op of people that you're claiming are going to be on this team in almost my, my home state of Maryland? And I'm feeling so proud, but then I'm back to, uh-oh, nope, you're gonna, I'm going to take it away from you because we want to let you know that we're in full control over you. And we're going to now scrutinize and ridicule every single one of your workouts. And so you go as a team, they bring extra girls that hadn't competed for over a year because of injuries. They bring other people. So, you know, uh oh, she wants your spot. You're training. If you fall off the beam, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm not going to be selected now. If you actually have an attitude toward your coach, which many times I didn't, I would shut down. I would look away because I couldn't have a personality of my own. Heaven forbid I was speaking up for myself that, you know, if you speak up or you seem bold, that that's going to be, you know, you know, cut again, you know, used against you. And so it was just constant criticism and you're on eggshells. And I remember I got that knock on the door. I believe it was in the morning and it was my coach telling me that you made the team like in 19 for 1992. And I remember crying, but it wasn't tears of joy. It was tears of this is going to have to continue. (laughs) That now I'm going to have to go to Barcelona. I think we went to maybe um, somewhere in France first to train. And now I'm going to be criticized each and every day because they will bring more girls to let you know, but you're still not on the team yet. And you truly never feel as if you made it until the day of the competition where they submitted all the names days before. And then, you know, you're marched out in the lineup. And so there was really never this feeling of, you know, adulation or just joy at all, at all. You know, and you get to the Olympics and you're thinking, oh, okay, this is it. Okay. You never get to really enjoy it. You know, it's just was, much control. Uh, do you think that, you know, in addition to everything that you're sharing today, you've also been an African-American woman in a predominantly white sport. What was, um, what was the feeling for you? I think you worked in London, maybe at the 12 uh, oh, games. Yes. And uh, to see Gabby Douglas win that gold medal. What was that like for you? Oh, it was so much joy. I mean, I I don't know who took it down, but I was working for Fox Sports at the time and my response went viral and then now you can't find it on the internet. But I was bawling, bawling because I knew how many young women and young boys of color were watching what she achieved, something I could not achieve at the 1996 Olympic Games because I fell in the all-around competition. She achieved it. She wasn't expected to achieve it. She peaked at the perfect time and I just knew this would just be this firestorm of so many young people of color seeing the sport of gymnastics as an opportunity for them. However, the way that the public, for some reason, responded and focused on her hair, it took away from what this young girl had accomplished. And I was, you know, I was furious about it. Like, why would you downplay the fact that she's now the first African-American to win an all around Olympic medal? It just it. Yeah, it was just yeah, it was excruciating, really, yeah. to, to yeah. spend one second on that. Uh, did um, what? Well, what do you think the legacy of the Magnificent Seven is or will be? Oh goodness, I think that's a very good question. I mean, those girls were 
they were my competitors my whole life. I remember having a, an image of Shannon Miller up on my locker. And I was thinking when I want to quit, I know she's not quitting because she was the hardest working <laughs> out there. And just deceitfully so strong, like she didn't seem like she would be strong, but she was extremely strong and she, you know, never, never gave up. Um, but great girls, amazing teammates. We put our egos aside um, to do what we needed to do to make history. And it was a, it was an interesting ride. Um, to do that, you know, but, um, you know, I can't be, you know, I'm grateful to be a part of that team and very humbled and honored and to know that we inspired um, a whole generation of athletes. However, that's why I feel the obligation now to be a part of the positive change in the sport of gymnastics, because there's so many people that have come to me and said, you know, you encourage me to put my daughter in the sport of gymnastics, or I encourage them to want to be in the sport of gymnastics. And hey, this is the way that I was treated, or this is the way my child was treated or abused or put down or, you know, slighted, or she's now struggling with things because of her experience in the sport of gymnastics. And that's why, while I didn't do that to them, I do feel an obligation to be a part of this positive change and to give young girls and boys and families a alternative that you can get introduced to the sport of gymnastics and have your self-esteem lifted up and not torn down like I had. Do you feel that it is changing? I will tell you in my own business, it used to be in production trucks that everybody screamed. That was the way you just, you screamed in the the talent's ear. You screamed at other people in the truck. You screamed, everybody just screamed. And now that is not the culture anymore. Um, Do you feel that Kelly Hill, Bella Caroli, that they are becoming relics and that it is changing? I think some people need not be on the floor coaching. They have caused too much damage, too much harm on individuals. And many individuals are too fearful to speak out and stand up. Still, still, still. I've had uh, former teammates that you, you know, they're still struggling with depression. I even have a teammate that, you know, made some tough decisions in life. And I ran into her aunt a couple of months ago. And she said, Dominique, thank you for what you're doing because the former teammate of mine is still struggling with uh, the ramifications of what she went through in that toxic culture. So while I understand some people might want to do things differently or they feel as if, you know, they're going to rid themselves of, of, of screaming at athletes or cursing at athletes or having full control, they are still not healthy individuals for the sport and they need to get out of the sport. I mean, you're really, you're like a lady liberty for this and it's, uh, and you speak so well. Did you, uh, did you handle that immense fame? You, you seem to wear it easily. We all remember you as wearing it easily, but was something else going on inside? Um, I'm more of a private person. Um, I always say I'm an introverted person. My husband's like, you're not introverted. because you're <laughs> introverted. You wouldn't talk as much as you do, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not my personality. I do feel as if some of that is a thorn in my side, but I think it's there for a reason so that I can educate and empower and influence. And so I recognize while it is not my comfort zone to go to the sports Emmys and to walk the red carpet and to be on stage with Mike Tirico and and do these things. um, When I have a platform that can empower, educate and inspire other people, I should darn well take advantage of it and make sure I'm lifting people up and again, not tearing people down. And that's why, I I mean, there's this phenomenal quote, I think it's by Edmund, Edmund Burke, 
And it says the only way that evil, and it's evil, it's evil. Leslie, read about how these coaches treat athletes. The only way that evil can persist in this world is if good people sit back and do nothing. Nothing. I remember being so silent and so insecure for so many years. And when everything came out in 2016 with regards to Larry Nassar, that really shined a light on me internally. And my husband bowed and said, you are going to be a part of this change. You are not going to have the ability to impact people positively and not choose to move forward. And that is why I feel so passionately about what we're doing and starting multiple academies because I want to be a part of the positive change. Because if I sit back in silence and allow these people to continue to rip down these kids that are going to grow up to be broken 20-year-olds, sadly 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, I see it time and time again, then I'm part of the problem. And that's why I want to be a part of this this, uh, positive change. Yeah, it is. um, It's a glorious thing to um, put yourself out there and, uh, you know, risk all that it comes with. But that's what causes change. You know, most most factions of either government or societies, they don't change without pressure. They don't change without a push. But um, I thank you, you know, so much for this. You have a magnificent place in history, but I can't let you go without you telling me about being in a Missy Elliott video. (laughs) I mean, come on. I've seen that thing a million times. And I don't think I don't think she really was on a beam there. No, that wasn't her. That was actually that was one of my teammates from the 2000 Olympics, believe it or not. When I I actually arrived on set, it was out out west. She wanted me to do gymnastics. And I was like, Missy, I am done. I will not do this out there. This is not getting into a leotard. And so she's like, okay, fine, you'll be my coach. But then they ended up getting one of my Olympic teammates. And Missy was phenomenal. Obviously, she's very talented. It was the oh, yeah. on this video. I love that when I want to get hyped up. But one that I loved more than anything was being in Prince's music video, Betcha by Golly Wow. I was, goodness, just turned 20 years old. He flew me out to Minnesota. I went to Paisley Park, which is also his studio slash home. And when I met him at the door, um, he was wearing this lace outfit, heels, like all prints, loved it. And at the time he was artist <laughs> formerly known as, and he asked me if I wanted anything to drink. And it kind of surprised me that he had such a deep voice because I wasn't expecting that. And I said, yeah, hot cocoa. And all of a sudden we were in his kitchen and he was stirring up a Swiss Miss hot cocoa for me. So <laughs> that is, um, yeah. Do you ever think that like what a passport, what I've achieved has given me? I mean, look what you've done and where you've been. You know, it's it's a lifetime ago. And even my husband is like, how in the world did you go to three Olympics? Because he knows I, you know, I do share this. I have a severe amount of social anxiety, especially coming from and I unfortunately did have a dysfunctional and abusive childhood, um, you know, at home with my parents. And then I go to this toxic culture of the sport of gymnastics. So there really wasn't a lot of peace and um, joy and happiness in my life. And so, you know, he sees what I've accomplished and, and barriers I've broken down or people that I've met or presidents that I've worked with. And he's like, how in the world with the way that you are, you know, <laughs> you've been able to do this. But while those have been great experiences, Leslie, and like, again, at Fight for Children, that was phenomenal, or um, goodness, the sports Emmys and fun events that, you know, you've done, I'm sure, throughout your career. What I find most fulfilling is being home with my kids and um, being mom. I never thought I would be a mom. I never thought I would be good enough to be a mom. You get that seed planted in you. You start believing it if you feed it with the wrong stuff. And I didn't think I'd be good enough to be a mom. And I'm blessed now with 
four beautiful children um, that when I walk through the doors, they're applauding me for the right reasons. <laughs> you know, like they're like, yeah, mommy's here. She Dominique, you've been a joy. You are a joy. You will be a joy. And um, I may have to come to one of your schools. I was able to do the, um, well, not a backflip, really. Uh, are back somersaults um, big in your school? Oh, of course. Those are oh, like good. basic fundamental gymnastics, uh, you know, moves that I would love to teach you someday. Excellent. Okay. And then probably I'll just be in training for the Senior Olympics. And I'll be joining you because I'm done. done. (laughs) Thank you, Dominique. And congratulations on your honor as well as your, um, goodness, Lifetime Achievement Award. Very well-deserved. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Serious XM Podcasts.